one thing, always tell people don't learn about refugees from others, learn about refugees from refugees. Often refugee stories are told through the lens of external observers, journalists, humanitarian organizations, donor countries. But refugees should tell those stories are left out of that conversation. So I think that should be the core of advocacy, ensuring that people have a platform to tell their stories. Oftentimes we talk about people being voiceless, people not having a voice. But I don't think anyone have no voice. Every single person have a voice. People do not just have a platform to tell their stories. People can speak in so many different ways, be it speaking, writing, pressure representation. You know, there's so many different ways people can, can tell their stories. And everyone has a voice. People just like a platform. Welcome to the Global Rights Defenders podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in each week to hear from Global Rights Defenders and learn about human rights issues worldwide. If you like these episodes, please subscribe, like, or comment below. Your feedback is so, so valuable to me. I read all the comments and emails, so for those of you who've reached out, thank you so, so much and keep it coming. If you want to hear about a particular topic, let me know. You can comment below or reach out to me at globalrightsdefenders.com or by email at globalrightsdefenders at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at GRD underscore now, Facebook or Instagram at Global Rights Defenders. Just a reminder, I'm trying to raise public awareness about human rights issues and eventually make weekly donations to the causes I am advocating for here on this podcast. By supporting this podcast, you are directly supporting those most marginalized and affected by human rights issues worldwide. Thank you so much for joining me today. Today I'm being joined by Neil Dang, who is such an incredible activist and we're so lucky to have him here in Canada, but he has such a unique story that I'm gonna let him share with us very soon here. And normally this podcast, as so many of you know, is so detail-oriented and, and dense and statistics and facts. And today we wanna focus more on a human story of just unbelievable resiliency and courage and strength. And we are so, so excited to have our special guest here. Just one last thing before we get into this interview, today here in Canada, we're recording on September 30th, which is the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Although you can't see us, both Neil and myself are wearing orange to commemorate the Truth and Reconciliation Day. We're over 150,000 Métis and Inuit First Nations students attended residential schools over a hundred year period. Roughly 6,000 of them died and were found in over a thousand unmarked graves. So the reason we wear the color orange is because it goes back to the color of antiquity. It represents sunshine, truth telling, health, regeneration, strength and power for different Indigenous and First Nations groups here in Canada. I'm joining you from the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations here in Vancouver. And without further ado, I invite my guest, Neil, to say hello and give land acknowledgements if he if he so chooses. Thank you so much for having me today. So glad I'm able to speak to you. Uh, my name is Neil Deng, and I'm joining from London, Ontario. And as just mentioned, I also just uh, would like to recognize that I'm grateful to the uh, Anishina Beck, Odenashani, and uh, Luna Pawak, and uh, Anishina Ton, on which uh, nations, on which unceded ancestral and traditional land I currently live, I study and work. I think it's very important that I recognize the harmful uh, history of Canada and the harmful, you know, practices that Indigenous people have suffered because I believe that is a way to move this country forward to a more just and better society where everyone can thrive, including those who have gone through so much harm. So thank you so much for having me and I'm glad I could share this space with you today. 
And it's so interesting. Yeah. Thank you for those words. And it is so important, as you said, and it's so interesting because you are such an advocate for education and here this indigenous and these indigenous people went to something that was being called education, but really was, you know, so much more harmful than it was positive. So it just really brings the space together today to talk about the importance of validity and transparency and just everything you stand for. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you and what is your story? Thank you so much. Uh, you know, I struggle a lot with the word, uh, where do you come from? Uh, I get a lot of, I, I get that question a lot and, you know, in a good way. I remember um, a week ago, I was in New York City and I went to, to, the, to the Transform Education Summit and I was part of Canada delegation to the summit because I sit on the Refugee Education Council. I remember I was on this panel where there were three countries that are doing a lot of work on meaningful youth participation and there was Canada and there was Sierra Leone and there was Shell in South America and there were three, they invited three ministers from both countries and three young people from both countries from those three countries to come and talk about meaningful youth engagement and transport education and I remember I was asked by the government of Canada to be on the panel with Minister Kadi, uh, Canada Minister for Education and Hali Shalu Development. And I remember what they said, we have, we love the minister from Canada and a youth representative. So the youth delegate from Canada were like, a youth representative from Canada, because most people know that, you know, I just moved to Canada and I'm originally from South Sudan. But for me, I think home is the people around me. So I'm originally from South Sudan. That is where my father come from. But my family has been affected by war for generation. I was born and raised in Ethiopia, where my father settled after fleeing the First Sudanese Civil War more than five decades ago. My dad moved from South Sudan to Ethiopia in the early 70s. And I was born there in 1999. Uh, I'm now 23. And I had a beautiful childhood. My dad is a storyteller and also asked me to learn about the stories of this childhood in South Sudan to just give me a sense of belonging to South Sudan, a country I've never visited until today. Growing up, go to school in the morning, come back, my dad would tell me stories and he told me about his childhood, he told me about the war that made him fled. Uh, he has fled a couple of times between South Sudan and Ethiopia. Sometimes we listen to the radio and it was through this storytelling and radio that I was introduced to the world outside my own village. You know, I wanted to learn more about the world. I wanted to know what is happening in different part of the world, what's happening back in South Sudan, why I couldn't go back there, was I wasn't born there. By listening to the radio, I dream of becoming a journalist. I wanted to be a journalist so that I could tell the stories of my village. So one day I tell my dad that, uh, what can I do to also broadcast news on your radio? And he told me I need to go to school, uh, master uh, very good English, and become and then go to London and work for BBC, become a radio on BBC. <laughs> So I went to school the next morning and I said to my teacher, I came today to learn good English. That's all brought me here. And she told me I should listen to American television shows and watch a lot of, uh, read a lot of books. We do not have a TV, but I had access to a few books. So I was reading all the time. I write a lot and I would read in the morning. And then when I come back in the evening, I listen very closely, attentively to the radio and see if I could hear any word that I read that day. And you know, that's how I learned English. I self-taught myself English when I was very young, but also uh, in Kakuma Refugee Camera, I spent, uh, you know, 11 Yes, so you know, I had that beautiful childhood, and then in 2010, all that gone away when my village in Ethiopia was attacked by an Ham militia, and I had to find my way to Kakuma, where I lived for the last 11 years. You mentioned Kakuma refugee camp. Do you mind explaining what that is to our listeners? So, when our village in Ethiopia was attacked by Ham militia, my dad sent me to Kakuma refugee camp with a group of refugees from my village that was fleeing to Kakuma. They're mostly women and children. So, in my village, when a village is attacked, men don't flee. They supposed to and they expected to stay behind and protect the village they sent away women and children so i was sent away by my dad and it took us two weeks to get to kakuma refugee camp and we get to this big dusty 
grew up of like you know i remember the first day we get to the camp we went to this unicr registration site where there were so many different refugees from ethiopia from south sudan from drc democratic republic of congo from uganda from rwanda from burundi from somalia who have all traveled you know long distance to get to the camp to just find safety to find peace to find a place where they can send their kids to school to find a place where they can have a nice shelter over there over their rope that is how i get myself to kakuma so kakuma is a huge refugee camp in the northwestern part of kenya it has been there for about 30 years the camp was set up in 1991 during the first during the second sudanese civil war when a group of child soldiers from south sudan escaped from the army and find their way to kenya if you know you know now there are 100 million displaced people across the world a portion of this number of people live in refugee camps and kakuma is one of that those refugee camps that has been there for so long and the average number of years that people spend in a refugee camp according to the un refugee agency Uh, UNICEF is 17 years. So having, you know, come to Kakuma in 2010, I met families, I met friends who have lived in the camp all their life and they're still in the camp. They don't know when they'll get out of that place. The camp are designed to be spaces where people can come and find safety, find access to basic needs like food, shelter. But, you know, they're, des- they're not designed to be a place where people can thrive. So people do not have opportunities to grow, like access to quality education, access to to decent houses or access to job. Yeah, that's just a glimpse of Kakuma. But I think something special about Kakuma, which is something I, I'm grateful for and something that I think tells us a lot about refugees is that, you know, people have turned Kakuma into a pipeline town on its own. You know, there are about 2,000, you know, refugee businesses. The camp pumps a lot of money into the local economy. It has impacted the host community in so many different ways. Culturally, you know, economically, refugees have contributed to the Kenyan community in so many different ways. And it just brings to light all the incredible things that refugees bring to the new communities. That's quite the story of resilience that people are just finding ways to still contribute and to have their own businesses and grow their families in a really healthy way. Because as you said, the average amount of time someone spends in a refugee camp is 17 years. Sometimes it's longer. And Kakuma Refugee Camp is Kenya's, one of Kenya's largest. I think it's Kakuma and Dadaab. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. Kakuma and Dadaab. Dadaab, yeah. So, and I also heard that the government of Kenya is looking to shut these two refugee camps down. They announced that in June over the summer this year. So I can't wait to talk to you a little bit more about that. But I want to talk to you and your personal experiences in Kakuma. I know you were quite resilient and quite an entrepreneur in Kakuma. So do you tell it, can you tell us a little bit about your advocacy efforts there and the community that you created? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, you know, having come to Kakuma, I remember arriving at the camp, lost, devastated, frustrated by all, traumatized by all the brutal images of war and, you know, the brutal images of violence that went as well fleeing my country. But I would say, you know, my life took a turn when I went back to school, you know, when I started swimming in school in Kakuma, uh, you know, I remember my first day in school, I was so happy, I was smiling, because I felt like I could make my dream of becoming a journalist again. So school was a safe place for me, where I was able to find solace, hope, courage, and like, you know, I start thinking about a glowing future again. And I went to my teacher and said, you know, I really wanted to be a journalist. That was my dream since I was a kid. And my teacher encouraged me to read a lot, to write a lot, and to improve my English. And, uh, you know, I did a lot of work on improving my English, reading a lot, writing a lot, but also love stories. Stories is the only way I make sense of the world around me, of the people around me. And I just listening to humanist stories, you know, hearing how other kids get to the camp, what the challenges they face on the way, you know, what are the challenges they still face in the camp? What are the hopes for the future? What are their aspirations? What are their dreams? And every single day of this school, you know, just go around and talk to my schoolmates, talk to my classmates, talk to my friend, and just hear these stories. Through that storytelling journey that I realized that most of the kids in my classroom were still traumatized by the brutal let me just support the UNS while fleeing their countries, you know, so I set up refugee peace ambassadors to create a space for young people to come together, to heal, 
to share his stories, to our peer support, could be supported by someone who came from DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, but also went through the similar journey like you who come from South Sudan or Somalia or Ethiopia. We organize feminist productivities to just get kids you know, out of that uh, limbo and trauma and just play and be happy organized community peace dialogue, bring different communities together. Kakuma has a population of about 230,000 refugees from 10 different countries who have different cultures, different religions, and sometimes tension arise between different communities. So it's good to have that space where people can just come and have dialogue and find a way to live peacefully together and thrive together and support each other. We run, you know, leadership and training program for young people. And, you know, that leadership training program, I think, was one of the big highlights of the work we are doing because I believe that communities in exile who live in refugee camp more displaced from their homes have a lot that they can do and you know they have a big contribution to make to building their countries so by investing in the leadership of young people or people on a refugee camp we invest in the future of those countries so we run a lot of leadership program and training program for young people on peace on ethical leadership on business to help young people be able to build their lives i also started a journalism club in my high school as well where we could share all those stories of young people that we have that we impacted that we we're working with that we were learning with from that process and also wanted to share that with the world so i created a social media channel when i was still in the camp to just share the stories of everyone i was meeting in the camp i'd go around with my phone and a camera and just take a picture of anything interesting i see and just share that with the world and show the other side of kakuma when people talk about refugees they talk about devastation they talk about suffering you know they talk about 10 you know they talk about people who are coming to take away their jobs people who are coming to destroy their communities and all of that but there's another side of kakuma there's a lot of resilience there's a lot of creativity there's a lot of innovation there are a group of young people in the camp who started a platform where people can learn for free and access resources online. You know, there are a group of young people in the camp who started a soap-making factory where they create soap and, you know, sell them for free. During COVID-19, there are a group of people, you know, who start producing masks for free for refugees and members of the host community. So there was a lot of that creativity and innovation and resilience. And I want to have an opportunity to share that with the world. So I created a social media account. And there's so many people around the world learn about my story and my work. And, uh, you know, I started getting invited to conferences to just talk about that, to talk about refugees, to talk about the work we're doing in Kakuma. And there was a way for me to also shift how people think about refugees, away from images of war and devastation, to stories of resilience, of hope, of creativity. You said so many important things there. And I just want to re-emphasize a point here is that you started the Refugee Youth Peace Ambassadors in 2017. And how old were you in 2017? Uh, 2017, I believe I should be around 16 or 17. Yeah, that is what I wanted to say. And you said something, another another really important point here, which is that you wanted to remind the kids that they should be playing, they should be having a good time and that they should be playing. And I know this cuts a little bit into your personal story, but you would watch YouTube of skateboarders and people playing and having fun. And that's what people should be doing at that age. But because of war and exile and hardship, I think people forget that they're just children and they're just people. And you as a child still put yourself in such an adult world in being an entrepreneur, starting a mentorship program, starting a journalism program. It's just, it's really remarkable to see how resilient and creative you are and how you've been able to jump off and make a career for yourself, even though you're such a young person as yourself as well. And the last thing I want to say is that refugees, so many of us, especially in the West or people that are concealed from daily hardship, don't recognize the dignity that needs to be asserted to each individual, just like you would assert it to yourself. They're not all helpless. They are absolutely individuals with dreams and passions, and it's not their fault that these things are taken from them. So if in any way we can kind of 
make the dialogue about how can we create more opportunities for equity, that would be something that contributes to the space positively. And clearly Neil is a is an exemplar of that and he's just so incredible. So we're so lucky to have him here and he's here to reemphasize that point a million more times. I don't need to make that for him, but he's just a, another factor of contributing to a positive space. Throughout his projects, he has decided to use a gender or intersectional lens for humanitarian programming. And he's actually not been a full-on consultant, but he has advised different humanitarian aid programmings and international development projects that have entered Kakuma. So can you tell us why is that so important to have a gender or intersectional lens when doing humanitarian or development projects? Yeah, I think that's very important. And personally, you know, I, I came to term with, with, you know, the barriers that women and girls face in their refugee come and access educational opportunities, leadership opportunities, or even just being able to thrive in their communities. I would say I think it's important to also acknowledge that we live in a very patriarchal world today, where we have government that are very patriarchal, we have systems that are very patriarchal, and even humanitarian aid in some way could be patriarchal as well. We have schools that are patriarchal. So I felt like it was very important to have an intersectional and gender lens, because I think one thing is that people often talk of refugees as one big homogeneous group, which which I believe is not, and which is not actually, you know, refugees have very different experiences and diverse experiences. The experience of the challenges that a refugee male growing up in a refugee camp go through are not the same challenges that a woman growing up in a refugee camp go through, or a child, you know, or a older person. And I feel like, you know, it's important to have those factors when you know, designing to an aid programming and just have that intersectional lens because different barriers come together and overlap and affect different groups in different ways. One thing we did, for example, at the Refugee Peace Ambassadors is that we start, you know, applying intersectional lens to the work we're doing, you know, running mentorship programs for young women and girls, you know, having service spaces where women and girls can come together to just talk about the barriers they face and to explore ways to overcome those barriers, teaching men to be, you know, good allies and all of those, but also, you know, teaching humanitarian organizations as well that they need to have intersectional lens in the work they're doing. You know, I work closely with different humanitarian organizations, including the United Nations, you know, UNICEF, I work on a project with World Vision on Peace Building, you know, working on different projects with Windall International Kenya, but run, you know, education in Kakuma, especially on the need to make schools a place for girls, be it by making sanitation uh, materials available for girls, be it making sure, you know, toilets are safe for girls and all of those. So I found that very, very important in order to be able to make sure these communities are spaces where women and girls can thrive, but actually everyone, you know, can also thrive. And that include, you know, even other groups that often live out like LGBTQI communities that often go through a lot of challenges because of the community around them. So it was very important to have that lens to just be able to ensure, you know, every single person is not left behind in the community and everyone have opportunity to thrive and not just survive. And it should also be noted that when we have gender equality or more prosperous gender opportunities, all of our economies do better. Not only yeah. does the nation's economy do better, but the global economy does better as well. Yeah, yeah, that's very important. You know, that is, and that is one thing we're talking, for example, of the United Nations about transform education. They need to eliminate gender stereotype and gender biases from our classroom. AB, the Lego Foundation CEO, talk about a very important thing about, you know, if men can graduate from university with a master's degree or bachelor's degree, and they still feel that men do not belong in some places, or men should make choice about women's bodies, and then that means something is wrong with our education. It's very important to just put all those you know, factors into consideration and to ensure that, you know, things like gender transformative education, you know, are the core of, trans of education programming, but also all dimension programming, you know, having an intersectional and a gender lens to ensure that we put gender equality and gender equity at the center of this work. That's really inspiring to hear because the conversation for 
gender equality, especially in terms of schooling or just embedded language is so pertinent, if not now more than ever. And I was reading an incredibly interesting article on LinkedIn about Google AI and Google Translate. And if you type in certain words in certain languages, it might associate those words with women. And I think it was one of the Slovenic languages and it was it associated women with the word naked. So that the term in English was a woman got dressed and the way it translated was a naked woman wasn't dressed or something because it associates automatically the word nudity with women and it goes to show the bias in AI that exists still it shows the bias that exists in languages it's an important conversation to have and I'm glad that it's at the forefront of the United Nations and their programming as well so what does global impact or advocacy mean to you something that I believe is very important is one thing I always tell people you know don't learn about refugees from others learn about refugees from refugees often refugee stories are told through the lens of external observers, journalists, humanitarian organizations, donor countries. But refugees, you should tell those stories, are left out of that composition. So I think that should be the core of advocacy, ensuring that people have a platform to tell their stories. Oftentimes, I talk about people being voiceless, people not having a voice. But I don't think anyone has no voice. You know, every single person has a voice. People do not just have a platform to tell their stories. People can speak in so many different ways, be it speaking, you know, in writing, pressure representation. You know, there's so many different ways people can, can tell their stories. And everyone has a voice. People just like a platform. So for me, advocacy more honest storytelling. I think people are often frightened by numbers when they see, uh, you know, 100 million displaced people, you know, 200,000 refugees in Kakuma. I'm just one person. How can I make a difference? But behind those numbers, they're human beings with hopes, with dreams, with aspiration. And we just want a second chance in life. So I believe by being able to share these stories of young people in Kakuma, by being just being able to tell institutions that it's not just Neil. Neil is just one individual. You know, there's so many incredible young people in Kakuma refugee camp who are, if given the opportunities like me to come to a place like Canada and just go to school and pursue my dreams. They can do so many incredible things, not just for themselves, but for their families, for their communities and for the world. So that is why I put storytelling at the core of my advocacy. And one thing I always do and tell people is that I speak at all these conferences. This summer alone, I spoke at 11 conferences in different countries, even shows that world leaders are different fields. And one thing I always tell people is that when you're speaking, I have so many different people coming up to me on stage and say, these stories are important times of it's the most important thing is what do my story And I believe that is why I do my advocacy. Last year when I wanted to apply to college, I wanted to go to the University I wanted to go to the University of California, Berkeley. And I applied to the University of California and share my story. And they admit me. They had a very competitive admission process. You know, they admit less than 10% of each student who apply each year. And I made it to that black number of nine of nine, 10% of students that they admit. And I got an admission, but they did not have a scholarship program. So they were not able to offer me funding and I could not go to Berkeley without funding. I think my story is Pakistan. My story is part of the composition of the University of California, Berkeley. They're like, what should we do? Do we have to turn incredible people like me out, like other young people across the world to come to the University of California, Berkeley, just because they do not have funding to support the education? What do we need to do? And Berkeley, you know, is a state funded school so for them to offer a scholarship to international students they have to change their policy and just sharing my story with them is part of that composition and last and three weeks ago you know the dean of undergraduate admission at berkeley traveled to kakuma and they set up a scholarship program for young people from conflict affected countries that will go to berkeley with a full ride for four years and they'll be able to pursue their scholarship and their dreams and just become whoever they wanted to be and i think you know that is the impact of the advocacy I try to do and the advocacy that many refugees do, that when we bring our stories to this platform, it's not just to inspire people,
people and make you happy. See someone who has uh, who has a lot of resilience or romanticized be resilient. But it's just to ask yourself. Mill is just one person. There are over two hundred thousand people in Kakuma. There are so many different refugees in the world. We just want a chance in life. We just want an opportunity to try. What does Nial's story inspire me to do? And what can I do for other people? I know at the end of the, this conversation we'll get to ways you know people can help. So I look forward to sharing those. But you know, yeah, that is that is that is what advocacy means for me. You're receiving so much positive feedback, and rather than say thank you and move on, you give it back to them, and you say, "And what? What's next? What's more?" You put it, the onus right back onto them in a gentle, kind, but very real way. And I really appreciate that. Even now, as you just said it to me, that when people come and say it's so inspiring, and you said, "What does that inspire you to do?" I felt inspired. I felt, well, "What does this inspire me to do?" It was so instant. So, thank you for coming up with that, and thank you for sharing that anecdote because I loved hearing it. And it's just incredible to hear that University of Berkeley changed their policy because of your application. It just started with an application. So, I just think that's the most incredible thing. Thank you. Thank you. So, also, I've heard you say that. You have an idea of how the international community should approach humanitarian or international development, and I've heard you say lead through the eyes of others. What did you mean by that, and how should the international community approach international development? Yes. So when I start getting involved with humanitarian organization or just talking to them about the work I was doing in Kakuma, you know, I used to go for a run. I run in the morning, and sometimes I pass by the UNHCR, by the UN camp compound, and the camp is a very well, good compound. You know. You just for a moment. UNHCR is the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, or otherwise known as the UN Refugee Agency. So yes, he would yes. run past it in the morning. <laughs> yeah, so I'd pass it in the morning when I'm going uh, for my run, and they have this big compound where with so much luxury. Sometimes they do not even have an opportunity to interact so much with the community. You know, when I get to learn them and get to meet them, you know, I met people who have worked in UNICEF of Kakuma for two years. You know, and they really even get an opportunity to go and talk to the community. You know, they just have a compound doing their work, and they, you know, they fly away, uh, you know, every few months and and come back and all of that. And feel like there's so much that people are missing. By leading through the eyes of others, I believe that as much as people have these experiences, you know, in humanitarian aid, international development, I spoke in a panel where I sit with people who have master degree in international development or humanitarian responses. And I always tell people, you know, you can have all these big degrees and big titles, but you know, I have life experience in humanitarian issues, and I believe this can't be equated with anything. Can't be equated that with textbook experience. You know, life experience will always come first. And you know, that is the cornerstone of telling people we need through the eyes of we need to lead through the eyes of others, and that means putting you know refugees at the center of humanitarian. Responses of putting communities displaced by war or by climate change or by the you know natural calamities at the center of this work because you know solutions are informed by the community affected the most are very effective. That is something we have seen in so many different ways. So always tell organization you know you cannot make a difference in refugees or displaced people life without speaking to them you know without hearing their stories without giving them an opportunity to inform the work you do. So that is what I mean when I said leading through the eyes of others. So that means ensuring that you know the work that organization do that the United Nations do you know that different foundation do is informed by the communities that they're trying to impact not just the experience they gain you know in the classroom learning about refugees and humanitarian issues not just the experience they gain working for this organization but the life experience of these communities what should drive the work they do 
and it's what should inform to what they do. Absolutely. And it goes back to when you were talking about many people see refugees as a homogenous group, one group that they're just observing as a totality that have no in, like distinctions. So it's yeah. really important to remember that it should be led through the eyes of people that are living it day in and day out. And that people like myself who earned a master's degree or other humanitarian international development type degrees is that we still are in a different space where we're able to be in the West or in the East, wherever you are, and then go to the country and then you leave the country again. That's kind of the the thing that exists here. And so for the people that remain, did it work? Did it help them? Did it become sustaining? Did you supplement their lives? Did you harm their lives? These are really important questions to ask. And I think in particular, the West has tried to implement so much education so that we can be culturally sensitive and we can learn and, you know, I can list so many things, but the reality is that people still have bias. People still don't know how to comport themselves or act around different types of people. And it's just so important that it's led by the people that live it every day. I just couldn't agree with you more. So thank you for sharing that. And thank you for having, again, just such an easy, understandable slogan, lead through the eyes of others. Easy. I get it. Could you tell us a little bit about the Kakuma and Dadaab refugee camps? I've been reading that in March 2022, that the government announced that it was going to shut both of the camps down. What would this mean for the refugee community? Thank you for the question. I think it's very difficult to describe or to put into words what that would mean for refugee communities. For example, myself, when I was living in Kakuma at that time, and the announcement came through because the announcement came through when I was still in Kakuma. You know, I think it's like your whole life being shut down because you've been in Kakuma for so long. There are many different refugees who've been born in Kakuma and Dab. Kakuma and Dab is the whole home they have ever known. It's the only place, you know, where they're able to find safety, where they're able to find peace, where they're able to have access to education, you know, where they're able to dream about a better future. So when you shut down Kakuma and Dab, that is basically, you know, shutting down their entire life because, you know, where do they go? And that is the question that many refugees ask. Where do we go? And in the argument of the article I wrote, uh, you know, one thing I was saying, you know, before we even start having conversation about closing down this camp, I think the most important conversation that should come first is finding solution for these people. Over 90% of refugees across the world want to go back to their home countries. They want to be able to go back and live their lives in their home countries and be able to access education in their home countries and just be able to build businesses, to build their countries and just be able to live peacefully you know no one wants to live in a refugee camp you know no one chooses to put their kids in water unless home is a mass of a chuck you know as western share said so i think you know it's important you know that people understand that before we even talk about closing kakuma and Dadaab, we need to talk about finding solution for these people you know is it about integration is it about resettlement you know making sure people can come to third countries where they can find peace and education and you know safety and a place to call home uh, you know is it repatriation and then you know you break down all those three different solutions integration it's very hard for people to integrate into the kenyan community you know kenyan is a country that has struggled with its own economic issue with its own security issues and refugees you know for example do not even have the right to leave the camp and go outside uh, you know for you to leave kakuma and Redab, you need to get a special permission from the government you know you do not have the right to work you cannot get a work permit it's very hard for you to start a business. You go through so many different barriers to be able to start a business. So those were different things. You know, when you talk about resettlement, very few countries open their doors to refugees. Globally, just 1% of refugees is resettled to third countries like Canada, the US, Australia, Denmark, the UK, and different countries. Repatriation as well. 
where is home? I talk about my own story. You know, I've been away from South Sudan forever. You know, I was born in Ethiopia because South Sudan was at war. And then I fled Ethiopia again because Ethiopia was at war. And then I moved to Canada. You know, South Sudan today is still at war, you know, many years later. You know, it started very long time ago. You know, Somalia has been at war, you know, since the early 1990. You know, the Democratic Republic of Congo is still, you know, in chaos. People are still being persecuted in Uganda just by being members of the LGBTQI community. People, you know, are still being persecuted in different countries just because they're journalists or they're human rights activists and speak up. Where do you tell all these people to go back to, you know, when there's no place for them to call home? So that was the big thing. So when you shut down Kakuma and Adabi, basically scattering these people, they don't have a place to go. They do not have a place to call home. And I think the most important thing for the Kenyan government to do is just coming to terms with this issue and saying, uh, we cannot shut down this camp, but, you know, we need to find a solution. Solution, you know, working with UNICEF, you know, working with other international development actors, you know, working with refugees themselves to look at what can we do to be able to find solutions for these communities. Refugee camps are not sustainable places where people come and live and grow and thrive. They're just meant to be temporary spaces where people can live for a while until when peace is achieved. But when is peace going to be achieved? Uh, you mentioned earlier, and I said that the average number of years that refugees is spending in a refugee camp is 17 years. But you know, I've known so many different refugees who have lived in a refugee camp for over 20 years for all their life. When is home going to be peaceful so that you can go back home? So I think the most important thing about that discussion, you know, is just talking about solution first and talking about shutting down camps. And I think, you know, it's something that happened all across the world. You know, politicians use the refugees for their own good. And when you look at the way politicians, you know, describe refugees, they describe them in many ways. You know, people coming to destroy our communities, people coming to take away our jobs. And it is not the first time in Kenya that politicians say they're going to shut down was camp. Actually, the conversation started with the DAP several years back. I think it was in 2015 or 2013 when the government for the first notice that they want to shut down the DAP because of the DAP contributing to insecurity. You know, different organizations who have done research on Kenya's insecurity find out that there are no linkages of any terrorist attack in Kenya, you know, to Somali refugees living under DAP. The Human Rights Watch, you know, for example, called the government out and said there are no evidence, you know, that refugees in the DAP or in Kakuma are responsible for any terrorist attack in Kenya. I think, you know, it's just ref politicians often turning refugees into into a political football and this person throw it there and this person throw it outside, which I believe will never, uh, you know, give us a solution. You touched on some really important points and I just want to follow up with a couple things that you just said. So when we're talking about identity of where is home and what is home, there's so many compounding identities because just as you said, you were born in one country, you were sent to another country, or your dad was from one country, you were sent to another country, you went to a third country, never mind how many millions of countries you've traveled for work and for the UN and all your ambassador positions, which is incredible. But that meaning of what is home is very, very important. And some people do live in these camps for 20 plus years, or if not their lifetime, and there's a reason for that. A refugee is a person who's defined as someone who has fled war, violence, conflict, or persecution, and has a fear of returning based on their life um, being threatened. So they could be tortured, killed, or for their family, they could be tortured and, or killed as well. If you're not able to prove that you're a refugee so that you're leaving from this type of conflict, you're not going to be able to get legal status. And a lot of countries have been trying to avoid giving the term refugee because they don't want to include so many hundreds of thousands or millions of people. And as Neil said, over 100 million people are currently displaced. And that's for a variety of reasons, even outside of war. Climate change has really affected millions of people as well. There are stateless people, such as those living in Palestine, who don't actually have a nationality. So there isn't anywhere to go. And 
That's why they end up staying in these camps for so long. It's also extremely difficult to apply and come to Canada or the US, Germany, because there's only X amount of people those countries are willing to accept as well. People wait years. They just wait years. And it's devastating because a life, an entire life is stolen basically in waiting. Can you tell us a little bit about the initiatives that you've launched? Yes, thank you. You know, I talked about earlier about you know, refugee peace ambassadors, and that is one initiative that I work on. The other one that I also work on, you know, was the journalism club in my school, and that was very important because refugees' stories are often told through the eyes of external observers. So I want to give refugees a space to just be able to learn how to tell these stories so that they can take part in global composition and just claim authorship of these stories and just be able to transform narrative that people are talking about refugees and displaced communities. And then, you know, in 2019, myself and four other friends uh, work on a step up, you know, with support from InfoSea and, you know, Lifeline Energy. We do is we support other refugees in learning marketable skills, be it communication, be it social media, be it graphic design, and try to connect them with online employers who want to give them job remotely and they can work from a refugee camp as a social media manager or as a communication officer or just as a graphic designer and be able to design different brands or different staff organizations. Over the last two years, we've been able to, to empower more than 1,000 young people in Kakuma and train as communication officers as social media designers and link them with organizations across the world that can give them jobs. We've set up teams, so we train someone and want to have these skills and want to be able to find a job online, be it through Upwork or other online platform. We ask them to create a team of five other people and mentor them and support them and help them learn the skill they learn. I see that as something very important because when people support refugees, they just see it as a charity case, giving someone food or giving someone money. But I feel like when you see this charity case, that dependency will never end. You know, by supporting refugees and see it as an investment, you know, so that people can become self-reliant, so that people can have that financial freedom, you know, so that people can be able to become engine of positive change and social transformation in their own community. So invest in people so that they become leaders, they become entrepreneurs, and they take that out and go and invest in others. And that is one thing we do with all our programming with refugees, peace and process, establish that we empower young people people to say, hey you know what, you have these opportunities, but go and pay it forward in your community. Why don't you start a group of two and three and five other young people and also support them and mentor them and just give them the skills to learn? And, and, you know, that is how we build a community of yeah. people, you know, we stand in solidarity in one another and support each other in learning because there are not a lot of learning opportunities in the camp. So I wanted to create that sort of, you know, informal community of solidarity of leaders. You know, we stand in solidarity with one another, but also support one another in just learning what they learned. In 2020, you know, I worked closely with Team Kunas from, from Belgium. It was among the top 10 teachers nominated for the Global Teacher Prize. And he wanted to, to expand education opportunities to refugees in Kakuma. So we worked together and set up Kakuma Innovation Lab School, which is an innovation hub equipped with over 100 computers. We have high-speed internet connectivity and kids from all backgrounds can come together and learn. But also what we do is, you know, we do three, two incredible things. You know, one is, you know, we have teachers from across the world, from four to five countries, you know, providing Skype lessons to refugees in Kakuma. So we, we have teachers from Belgium, teachers from Germany, you know, just offering four to five minutes of their time a week and teaching refugees in Kakuma, you know, math, science and social studies and history and other subjects. We also do classroom interaction. You know, we wanted people to learn about refugees. So we have our innovation lobby school in Kakuma interacting with a classroom in Canada or with a classroom in the US. And just kids talk about, you know, things that they do and we want kids here to learn about refugees from refugees and just be able to make friends in the camp. So provide coding training in the innovation hub. So that is one thing I work on. And then during COVID-19, of course, Kakuma was affected just like all countries in the world. And it's very challenging in the camp because people do not have access to reliable information 
information about the pandemic because there's very limited access to technology and internet. And uh, because of that, rumors spread a lot. People do not know what is COVID, how can they protect themselves. You know, we set up Unakika, uh, you know, it was an awareness campaign and we used short text messages. We used posters so they put up in different languages and put them across the camp. And we were able to reach more than 30,000 people with reliable information about COVID-19. We set up, you know, a rumor monitoring platform where people can send rumors and we verify those information working closely. Local health authorities and local authorities get back to people and say, this is a rumor, you know, this is not true. This is how, we can, pro- this is how you can protect yourself. We train, uh, you know, young people to become community ambassadors in their com- community so that they can, you know, try to verify information and rumors for their community, you know, around COVID-19. Also participated in a project with UNICEF, the United Nations children agency working with other young people across the world who design you know short videos that we, that we share with children across the world on how they can cope with the stress on how they can learn during lockdown and all of that so you know those were a number of initiatives i participated in while i was in kakuma and that i was able to co- to lead with other young people like i'm also incredible so many you've done so many incredible things i can't even imagine how you have time to do those things is there anything else that you haven't talked about today that you would like to talk about I think that is the most part of my work. I think, you know, the other project that I work on is Shilit Kakuma. You know, last year during the winter break, I traveled back to Kakuma and set up Shilit Kakuma as a leadership and advocacy program for young women and girls that can be trained them as leaders, as advocates for their rights in their own communities. Over the last nine months, we've trained, you know, over 100 women and girls as leaders and advocating the home communities. You know, we had one of them, you know, invited to speak to the Transportation Summit in New York. They could not make it because of visa issues, but they're able to speak virtually, which was good, you know, so that they can make their voice heard. So we do those training with young people. But something we did with Shilis Kakuma as well is that we create a mentorship program. So we connect young people in Kakuma versus students across Canada and the US and Europe. And we have incredible women and girls and young girls in university here mentoring young people in Kakuma virtually. We share the same passion with them. We have a student, for example, in my college, we start English and want to be a journalist, you know, mentoring a young person in Kakuma and also want to be a journalist. So we did that and we, and we connect, you know, around 50 young girls and women in Kakuma with, you know, with female mentors across the world who provided six-month intensive mentorship programming to them and just help them, you know, become who they want to be. They support them with the application if they want to apply for jobs or if they want to apply for colleges or if they want to apply, you know, for funding, you know, to start a business or, you know, to apply for capital to set up a business. So we have that, that mentorship program is also linked with college preparatory program as well. So we, we teach them, you know, how to write essays, how to present themselves, teach them how to apply for colleges because most of them are in high school and they also want to go to college to learn the skill that they need to pursue their dreams and become what they wish to be. Wow, that's amazing. Again, I'm just so inspired by you and just astounded by you and all your projects. And I can't wait to keep up with them and just see how they grow and how you grow. And it's just incredible. You're incredible. I have no other word. So thank you so much. I appreciate that. Of course. So my final and most important question is how can listeners help from home? Yes, thank you so much for that. As I said, I always tell people, what do my story inspire you to do? And I think that's the most important. There are so many different ways people can help. You know, one thing I always tell people, you know, no act of kindness is small. You know, uh, every single action count. There are so many different, the thousands of refugees, millions of refugees across the world. And people are often overwhelmed by numbers. But one thing I want people to understand is that, you know, behind every single number or digit of those very big lofty figures, they're human beings with dreams, with hopes. And you just want to make those dreams a reality. So even helping one person be able to achieve their dream of going to college, I think is a big thing. And, and there are many different ways people can help. The first thing I always tell people is, you know, learn about refugees and learn about refugees from refugees, or not from what politicians will tell you or not from what the TV or the radio or the newspaper will say. Don't pick 
you know, the newspaper to read about refugees or don't, you know, switch on your TV. Go to your next door neighbor who is a refugee, you know, talk to a university student in your college who is a refugee, you know, talk to newcomers in your community, talk with refugees and hear their stories. You know, you'll find there's so many different common ground and you you might even share the same passion. And the other ones give refugees a platform to share their stories. We talk about people being voiceless, you know, I've met people who tell me, oh, I want to be a voice for the voiceless, but no, we just want people, we just need to give people a platform to tell their stories. And sometimes I get invited to conferences and I'm like, hey, you know what? Thank you so much for this invitation. But you know what? My story on is, you know, I have a platform today. I know so many different incredible young people in Kakuma, you know, who can talk about this work even more better than myself. Why don't you invite them? Why don't you give them this platform? So giving refugees a platform to share this story, I think is a very important thing. It's speaking up for refugees, right? And breaking stereotypes about refugees in your community, in your school, in your workplace, helping your family learn about refugees and try to break biases and stereotypes they think about when they think about refugees or your co-workers. That is something important. It's speaking up for refugee rights be it on social media, be it about joining local group or local human rights advocates that advocate for refugee rights and can support them. Employing refugees in your business, in your company, that is something I'll tell people to do as well. You know, I think that is a very tangible thing you can do, you know, just help people, you know, give them jobs to start their life. Encouraging university to start a scholarship program for refugees. In the summer of next year, I'm going to Kakoma with the university with the university president of my college. You know, hopefully we'll be able to make some announcement. Just being being able to encourage university to set up a scholarship program for refugees or to for a scholarship to refugees to them so that they can pursue their dreams and become who they want to be and just achieve all the aspiration. Helping the refugee family integrate. Canada, for example, has settled so many different, a lot of refugees. Canada community and private refugee sponsorship program is one of the most innovative refugee programming in the world. You know, you can help a refugee family that has to come to your community integrate, be it by letting them know how they can take their kids to school, you know, how they can access healthcare, helping them learn English or helping them learn French or, you know, whatever language that they need to thrive in that community that is a very important thing as well uh, uh, you know you could organize a fundraiser in your community for local organization that support refugees or even to be able to send a young refugee to college you can donate to organizations that support refugees different organizations are doing incredible work for refugees and as i said Helen, i think it's too small sometimes people think what will my hundred dollars do you know there are a million refugees but no act of kindness is small you know that hundred dollar can help someone a lot and can go a long way and then three other things which are also very very important one thing is hiding your local parliamentarian to support refugees or to support policies that welcome refugees in parliament. You can write to a local parliamentarian and just tell them that, you know, you want your community to welcome refugees. You want them to be able to support policies in parliament. You know, they will support refugees, they will support people displaced by war, by climate change, you know, by natural calamities, you know, people fled who fled their home because of persecution. And the other one, you know, that is also very important is elect leaders who care. I've, I've talked to people, you know, who have told me, you know, I'm done with politics. I'm not doing anything with politics again. But, you know, voting, I think, is a very important and things when you let people talk about uh, refugees people are coming to take away your job or you know will block doors for refugees i think there's a there's nothing that we can do even if we work for humanitarian organization or work in humanitarian development space but being able to elect leaders who care and you will enact policies that support refugees the united nations for example is one important entity that i can talk about when people talk about politics you know the un is all a, polit- a big political machine countries go there and support policies that they want to support so if you send leaders who will not talk about refugees and will not support refugees to the un and then, you know, there's nothing that will work. So it's all starting in your country and just
is being able to elect leaders who care. And then the last one, which is also important, is just be a kind and compassionate human being. You can be kind to anyone, not even just refugees, to, to, to your friends, to anyone uh, around you, because I, I believe all these things that you can do for refugees is start by opening your heart to people by just being kind and compassionate. And I believe, you know, when you're kind and compassionate, you will definitely, you know, be able to support refugees in so many different ways and just being able to help them, you know, not just even survive, but also thrive and be what they want to be and just become part of a world. That was so beautiful. And thank you so much for sharing that. It's such a, it's so true. It's such a, a, a deep, raw passion that you give and that you exude. And I'm just so grateful to have had this conversation with you today. And I'm not sure about the Canadian laws, if how to be elected as prime minister, but if you ever run, I promise <laughs> I'll vote. I swear to you, I will vote for sure. I just can't wait to see what you do. And I can't keep, wait to keep up with your work. And I just thank you so much for giving me an hour of your time today. Thank you so much for having me and for taking the time to talk to me and for listening to my story and for sharing it with your audience. Very much appreciate that. <laughs>